Well, we're going to pray for our time together uh, now. But before we do, we're going to have uh, the first part of our main reading, 2 Kings chapter 16. If you'd like to follow, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, There are some spare church Bibles on the bookstore at the back, if you have your own. I'll read 2 Kings 16, then lead us in prayer for our time together this morning. Picking it up at verse 1, it says this. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath, the Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of, Ass- king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of a lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he called Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Oh, the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and with the burnt offering of all the people on the land and their grain offering and their drink offering, throw it all. Throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. He took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go round the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? 
And Nahas slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. We're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading now, which is 1 Kings, 7, 2 Kings, 17. <laughs> Go round again. 2 Kings 17, we're picking it up from verse 1, says this. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned for nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and prayed him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to Saul, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practised. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet yeah, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised their, his statutes and his covenant. And he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They were after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them, and gave him into the hand of plunderers, until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, 
And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities of which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephavites burned their children in the fire of Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes of the rules of the law or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. And you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Do keep uh, that text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, today. Um, and there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that. And at the end, there'll be an opportunity to ask any questions or comments. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the, this text has been recorded 
for our instruction. And therefore we pray that we might um, understand uh, this uh, portion of your word, uh, particularly in the light of the promises that you've made and your purpose for the world. Uh, please, um, by the same spirit who inspired these words to be written, uh, would instruct us and illuminate our hearts and minds that we would know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the things about two kings is that you can lose your way a bit in the narrative. Uh, what with this continuous string of kings and you've got these two kingdoms going on. And so today's passage is quite a helpful one because it's, it's a big turning point in the narrative that will help us to get our bearings as to where we are. Because here in 2 Kings chapter 17, Israel, the northern kingdom, goes into exile. Okay? Now, if you remember back in 1 Kings 11, that's another key text, that's where, because of Solomon's idolatry, the kingdom divides into two. And it's here in 2 Kings chapter 7 that the northern king goes into exile in Assyria. And at the end of 2 Kings, chapter 25, the southern kingdom, Judah, will go into exile in Babylon. Okay? So that's, that's where we're approaching. Now, the downfall of the northern kingdom has been expected since their beginning because their first king, Jeroboam, he was the one that made the two golden calves. And ever since then, Jeroboam has been the measure of their kings. Um, we even have him mentioned, uh, mention of him in our text today. If you look back at 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 21, this little um, explanatory uh, look back, it says, When he had torn Israel from the house of David... So back in 1 Kings 17, they made Jeroboam the son, 1 Kings 11, sorry, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. In other words, Jeroboam set the path for Israel's future. Now, we've talked in previous Sundays how the hammer of that judgment has been slow to fall for various um, prophecies, uh, which were an opportunity uh, that we would know more of God. But it's here that the hammer of God's judgment falls. So really, from 1 Kings chapter 11, by and large, it's been a story of decline that leads to this point, Israel's exile to Assyria. Now, the author of 2 Kings wants the reader to be in no doubt why Israel has gone into exile. Because at a human level, it could be explained because of a blunder in foreign policy. By chapter 17, Israel is a vassal state 
to Assyria. But they do not pay the tribute, the required tribute, and they're colluding with Egypt. Assyria is not happy, and they decide to invade. And so the moral of the story is, if you're a vassal state, make sure you pay your tributes. You know, on, on the surface of things, that's, that's what's going on. But that's not where the author wants the reader to stay. Because if you look on, it says in verse 7 of chapter 17, and this occurred because, here comes the explanation. There's been no confusion why this is happening. Now, the thing that's emphasised in what follows is Israel's culpability. They've not been left without witness. God has told um, about himself. He's redeemed them from Egypt. He's told them not to have other gods before him. He sent prophet after prophet to warn them. But the problem was, verse 14, they would not listen. These people were God's redeemed people who become idolatrous and despite the warnings. And the warnings weren't last minute. I mean, they were given warnings before they even entered the land. So back in Leviticus, um, they were given instructions, if you recall, about how they were to be holy as the Lord God is holy. And otherwise, just as the nations were vomited out of the land so they could have it, so God would vomit them out of the land. Now, as a brief aside, um, the topic of modern Christian guidance, which is often found perplexing as we search for what it is that God uh, wants me to do. Now, that there is confusion presupposes that God hasn't spoken so that I don't know what I should be doing. But that is a far cry from what's described here. The people knew how to live as his people because they had told him. And he had warned them about it. You know, if anything, the story from 1 Kings 11 up to this point is the story of God's forbearance and patience on Israel. But they did not listen. They were stubborn. It's as simple as that. It's not a case of, I don't know what to do, but I don't want to do it. I mean, listen to this. Here's a pastoral uh, reflection from um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, on precisely this point of knowing God's will. He says this. It's not that we don't know, but it's that we do know, but we don't want to. Very often when people say they're having problems about guidance, what they're really faced with is a problem about obedience. The issue at stake is whether we will walk along the paths of righteousness in which God will lead us. Now, on the one hand, this is very liberating. 
it takes the mystery out of knowing God's will. But at the same time, it's ultimately damning for those who disobey. Israel is not the only nation in view. We also have Judah. And actually, um, our reading began with the latest goings-on in Judah. This time, Ahaz is now king. And we're told that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, chapter 16, verse 2. And basically, the rest of chapter 16 is about, let me tell you what that looked like. So, he sacrificed to other gods. He made an alliance with Assyria. Now, the problem with that is it's a lack of confidence in God, because... Well, actually, it's hinted at at the end of chapter 17 that God had promised his king that he will deliver him from his enemies, chapter 17, verse 39. But there's no talk of that here. This isn't the king who seeks to trust God for deliverance, but makes his own way. Thank you very much. And that is what's going on here. And then you have this, well, it's remarkable, it's um, Solomonic. You've got another effectively rebuilding of the temple, or more like a, a refurbishment. So whereas Solomon, he built the first temple in accordance with all of God's decrees, here, would you believe it, it's in accordance with the pattern he got from the king of Assyria, chapter 16, verse 11. I mean, it's quite shocking when you see the parallel. It's a parody. And we're told that this happened because of the king of Assyria. Now, whether, these, whether Ahaz does these things to impress Ahaz, uh, sorry, impress, impress uh, the Assyrians or further collude with the Assyrians, I mean, it may simply be aesthetic. Ahaz goes over to Assyria He sees their temple. Oh, I do like that. I must have one. Can you give me the plans? I'll have my priest Uriah build one ready for when I return. So he gets back. There it is. To make room, God's altar, pushed aside. Judah is not going any better than Israel. And if you look carefully in chapter 17, the warnings were not just to Israel. So if you look at verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. The Lord here is warning Israel and Judah. And this is made explicit in chapter 17, verse 19, that Judah is doing the same things as Israel. Now, Judah, at this point, is intact. But they are looking on to see what happened to Israel. And so the point to them is, this comes as a further warning. If Judah's king 
continues to walk in the ways of Israel's king, then this is what's going to happen. And again, this is a further forbearance of God on Judah, that they would see what's happened to Israel and why, and that they would turn from their idolatry to him. And further on, when Judah are in exile, and this is read, they would know why they're in exile. It helps them to understand the events that are happening to them, and therefore, what will be required of a solution. Now, we might have high hopes for Judah. They have the promise. They've had some of the better kings. But that's not in view here. David is only mentioned once in chapter 16, verse 3. And then it is is a contrast to the way of Ahaz. The people of Judah are not safe from God's judgment because they have the promise. And we've seen this played out before. If you recall in the book of Numbers, that generation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. They had the promise, but because of their rebellion, they were not permitted to enter the land. And the 40 years in the desert was for that generation to die, so that the next generation, with the promise, would enter the land. God is perfectly able to keep both his promise and execute his judgment on his people. The promise should never be a cause for complacency. God's purpose cannot be thwarted, and it's how the people relate to those promises that will determine the role that they will play in them. Well, the last part of our reading is a little tricky. With Israel in exile, the Assyrians send their own people into Samaria. Some of them get killed by lions. Oh, God sent lions among them, which killed some of them, verse 25. The king of Assyria then calls for an Israelite priest to find out what they need to do. And they end up with this pantheon of which the Lord God was one. Now, there's no more mention of lions, and so we might assume that what they did worked. Although every bone in our body is saying, that's not a fix, that's polytheism. And it even says that they did not fear the Lord, verse 34, even though they did fear the Lord. It's all a bit confusing. So let me start by saying that one of the skills of reading narrative in the Bible, well, we can make an assumption that narrative is normative. That's the idea that if something happens, we assume it's a good thing that can be copied or emulated and comes as an example to us. Pushed to the wall, it's a moralizing use of the Old Testament. We take the example here, they're eaten by lions, So the solution is to fear God along with all the other gods. 
You've got to keep all the gods happy. But then we know that's not right. Now, the way to sort this out is to lose the idea that narrative is normative. A feature of narrative is that narrative simply tells us what happened. And that's why the explanation is so important. Now, here we're not given very much explanation other than the Lord sent the lions. And if that wasn't there, we wouldn't even know that. Then it could simply be the case that, as it happened, there were some lions that killed some of them. The people assume it's come from the god of Samaria, etc., etc. But we know that these lions were sent by the Lord. But there's no comment about God being appeased by the people's response or of God being satisfied. There are just no more lines. Rather, the people did what they did because that is what they're like. I don't know what you thought when the king called for an Israelite priest that they would know how to fear the Lord. My hopes were not high. I mean, bearing in mind what's happened to Israel and Israel's history, I would not expect one of their priests to be able to tell me what I should be doing. And the priests cannot spoken of well because they end up with this polytheistic thing. This betrays who God is. He is the uncreated creator. He has no rival. And because he made everything, he's worthy to be worshipped. Polytheism denies that. It makes out that there are these regional gods. The god they include is the god of Samaria. And so we need to make sure he's included in the worship. Now, the commentator on this makes an interesting point, And he suggests that when it says that the nations feared the Lord, uh, you could read it as if it was put in inverted commas. So that it reads, they feared the Lord. But that would then tie into the fact that they didn't, in fact, fear the Lord. Because to fear the Lord is to know who God is. And that involves a turning from idols to him. And this whole chapter concludes with the nations being entrenched in polytheism. So then, we might conclude that Israel and Judah, and the nations, that no one fears God. But at this point, it doesn't come as a surprise that the nations do not fear God. I mean, we're not expecting that. And so I wonder if a different conclusion might be reached, one that's slightly more related to the significance of what's happening to Israel and Judah. Let me ask you a question. How serious is the corruption of Judah and Israel? I mean, sure, it's serious for them, but it also has consequences for the nations. In God's purpose, Israel was to be a light for the Gentiles. It would be through Israel that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11, verse 9. But the best, the best that Israel has managed is for the nations 
to add the Lord God to their panting of gods and therefore display no knowledge of who he is. Now, in their corruption, Israel fails God's purpose for them and the nations are left in their idolatry. Yet the promise remains with Judah. They're still the ones to watch, but they look like they're going the same way. And whilst Judah's kings are corrupt, that not only brings into question Judah's future, but also the future of the nations of the world. Let's pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on this text. And uh, we thank you for your great forbearance that we've seen on your people. Yet at this point, uh, the hammer of your judgment falls on the nation of Israel because they did not listen to you. And Father, as we think about the significance of that, um, we see the importance that Judah would pay attention to what it is that you're doing and that they wouldn't only do it for their own sakes but so that the nations would know who you are. We thank you for the explanation that you give of these events and pray please that you'd help us to follow the promise, the promise that lies with Judah and will eventually find its fulfilment in the king who is not corrupt, but who always did right in your eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, are there any questions or comments? Thank you. So, uh, just for the recording, in verse 23 it says, um, I'm picking it up from verse 22, the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants and prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So I think, Susie, that this language of out of his sight is, this, is related to this idea of judgment of God on his people. Um, so positively, you kind of get the language of um, 
blessing is that you know, God's eyes are on his people, he's, he's with them, he's blessing them, that kind of, um, he's attentive to them, he's listening to them, answering their prayers, that sort of language. Whereas I think this is the, the opposite of that, it's, it's the curse, it's, you know, if you go from sort of, you know, Genesis 3 picture, it's been banished from the garden, it's been shut out from his presence. Um, I mean, I don't know if the confusion is we're just thinking, oh, how can you be out of God's sight? Because he sees everything. So it's not, it, it's not, it's not making a comment on um, God's unable to see what they're doing or where they are, but it's, it's, um, it's how he's, it's a kind of a, it's, it's a phrase that helps us to understand how the relationship between Israel and him has changed because of their persistent idolatry. He's, it's, it's banishment, you're, you're, you're away from me. Does that help? Yeah. Cool. Yes, Josh. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I mean, on the final reflection, we're going to pick up on how this is a warning to us, because that's precisely the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 10. So you're, you're spot on. Um, so we'll come to that. It's interesting. Initially, I, the, whole initial, the first version of the sermon was it was all going to be a warning against idolatry. And you know, we'll, there, is, there is that. But I think in the first instance, it ended up actually um, placing this particular warning in the storyline of the Bible, because this is a particular turning point in terms of um, you know, Israel's gone to exile. Judah has the promise. The promises haven't been fulfilled. Well, we've got to this point, but it all looks like Judah's going to go the same way. Where does that leave the promises? How, how's that going to kind of work out? That's the kind of the drama 
of the moment. And it's not a drama in the sense of, oh, will God keep his promise? Because I, I, I always go back to Genesis 1. God's the un, he's the unrivaled, uncreated creator. So there's no question that God won't keep his plan. The question is, with, it, with all the contesting of his rule and all the idolatry, how is, how is he going to keep his plan? It's that kind of, what's the... the um, um, how is it going to be played out? And that's the insights we're sort of getting in terms of what will then happen. Um, the, what was I going to say? The, um, it's interesting with the whole um, idolatry of the people because at this point, because one of the things we think about in a little bit is that we are at a much, um, much more privileged position um, in terms of, you know, we know God in a way that they never did. I'm just doing the final reflection now. But like, um, the, and so uh, it's interesting that here you've got these warnings, which are very strong, and you see the judgment of God. It's interesting, the New Testament, the way that Paul speaks in Ephesians, you know, he, he starts off with, praise be to the uh, God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He's given every, every spiritual blessing in him, unpacks that. His prayer then is, I pray that you would uh, know God better, that you would know the hope to which you are called. So he's very confident that his people will know God and know the inheritance and persevere. So that's kind of the tone of the New Testament. It's in that fulfillment is because of Christ and our incorporation into him. It's, it's, now, there are still warnings, and, and we touch on those in terms of for us, at that point, this is the thing. It's, it's the, there's the, um, the great privilege, which is, I think, Paul majors on in a major tone in terms of, therefore, why would you do anything other than get to know God better and make him known, persevere? But there's still that warning to squander that knowledge at that point and turn to idols. You know, with that greater revelation comes greater consequences. So there is a warning um, not to do that. So I think, um, yeah, we just don't want to go anywhere, anywhere near that. Um, no, a final thing on that. So, um, the idolatry thing is interesting because we might be thinking that idolatry is, you know, we're nowhere near from making shrines or constructing altars and therefore it's not really a threat. But if you remember the whole thing about idolatry begins with wrong thinking about God, I think one of the interesting things in these two passages is how subtle the idolatry is. I mean, we see it a mile off. But if you think about it, in 2 Kings 16, they're just tinkering with the temple. The temple's still there. God's altar's still there. But it's just not as... It it goes back to this idea of evil is the twisting of good. And that twisting allows for deception. And therefore, and similarly with the, the nations, they're, they're, do they fear God? Well, they do fear God, but they don't fear God because they've got this pantheon. Um, and so it goes back to this whole idea of we, we want to be getting to know God better, and as we know him, we won't distort our proneness to God. We won't misrepresent him. We won't distort him. Um, and the way to do that is just to... Is, is to um, wallow in, bask in his revelation of himself, which we do every week. You know, that's, that's the antidote, is just to 
um, pray Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 and then spend the rest of our lives doing just that. That's the, that's the way forward. Um, cool. Time for more? Go on, Nikki. I knew you'd ask me that. I go through thinking, what is a question that someone's going to ask me? So I think Nathan spotted me swatting up for it later this week. So, yeah, so for the recording, so 17 verse 9, the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord the things uh, that were not right. doesn't come across very secretive. Um, it was fairly blatant. There's no evidence that the people were trying to do it in a hidden way. So what does it mean? Let me look at my crib sheet. So, um, so the commentator suggests a different translation for the word that's translated secretly. I think one of the issues is, is the Hebrew word that's translated secretly, I think, uh, is very rare. So that obviously makes uh, what it means different. I don't know why they put secretly here. The commentator didn't offer a reason why. But they suggested an alternative, um, which is uh, the idea of to overlay. So let me just read out the comment I made and see if this makes sense. So it might be better to understand the verb uh, secretly in the sense of to overlay. And this would put the whole thing in the context in which preparations for worship are described. Um, so this is the idea that you know in the temple various things were overlaid with gold or um, carvings and so on. But the idea of overlaying also referred to false worship. So the golden calves were overlaid. You know, they're overlaid with gold um, and, and carved and so on. So the, the commentator offers as a translation, the Israelites overlaid things that were not right so far as the Lord their God was concerned. So basically, it's referring to the, the worship that they did, that they were overlaying things uh, that hadn't ought to be overlaid with gold or a carved and so on. So again, it's part of their misrepresenting God and their disobedience and their idolatry. Is that right? Great. Okay, we'll leave it there. We're going to sing um, uh, a, another song. We sang this a few weeks ago. And this is the one that picks up on many of the themes of Ephesians. Um, so if you haven't um, exhausted uh, your search for those themes, and as we sing this song, why not be looking out for some of those ideas? Pardon? Is it? How do you mean?